A business owner was set to open a new store in a prime location of town. A husband and wife wanted to send their friend best wishes in this new uh, business venture, so they decided to send a floral arrangement for the opening day festivities. When the day of the grand opening arrived, they came, and much to their surprise and frustration, when they saw the floral arrangement that was sent on their behalf, they noticed the wreath simply read, rest in peace. They thought to themselves, this is not the message we wanted to send our friend in the opening of a brand new business. They immediately called the florist. They demanded an explanation. When they told the story, the florist began to apologize profusely. And she said, there's been a tremendous mix-up and we are so sorry. What makes it worse is that there's somebody being buried today under your wreath. The wreath that you ordered for your friend now is, is hanging over a casket somewhere and the wreath simply reads, good luck in your new location. <laughs> Today we come to the 10th and final sermon in our series on the life of Moses and Moses is about to enter a new location. The Bible doesn't contain very many obituaries. But when you and I come to the last passage in the book of Deuteronomy, those few verses could be labeled the eulogy of a faithful servant. The eulogy of a faithful servant. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 to 12. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Deuteronomy chapter 34, let's begin at verse 1. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants." I have let you see it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. He died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Bet Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. When you and I come to the last 12 verses of the Pentateuch, there are at least three takeaways that we can observe from the life of Moses. The first one is this. Moses always believed God to be a promise keeper. Moses always believed God to be 
a promise keeper. Our passage begins by telling us that Moses climbed Mount Nebo on the plains of Moab. He went atop Mount Pisgah across from Jericho. And from that vantage point, God gave him a counterclockwise panoramic look of the promised land. He started his gaze to the north. Then he set his sights straight in front of him to the west. Then he looked to the left down in the south region, for he was standing at the east. The Lord told him to look north, and there you would find the region of Gilead. Dan and Naphtali, those are the tribes that would dwell there. To look right in front to the western area, you would find where Manasseh and Ephraim. There, a little bit to the left, is the land of Judah. If you look in the far distance, you'll find that great Mediterranean Sea. And then God set the gaze of Moses to the left, down south, the far reaching down south into the Negev, and then right there to the left, the plains of Jericho. As I think about how God guided the sight of Moses, it strikes me that God labeled all the area, not by its current citizens, but by its inhabitants who would be there after the conquest. In other words, what I mean is that God did not say, now if you look up there, that's where the Amorites are living. Or over there, that's where the Jebusites are. Or if you look down there, that's where the Hivites are now residing. No, he didn't say that because he knew this land didn't belong to those people, those nations. He began to describe it as it was foretold. Uh, This is where the people of Israel would live. Up north, you would have Naphtali and the tribe of Dan. And there to the west, there would be Manasseh and Ephraim. And there just to the left of them would be the the tribe of Judah and you would find all the people of God as they were appropriately dispersed through the promised land. I think at some point, God must have set the sight of Moses in the northwest direction. He would have said, Moses, if you look over there about 45 miles, there you'll find Shechem. Now Shechem may not mean a whole lot to you, But Shechem was the ancient town. That was the place where the Lord had told Abraham, I will give this land to your descendants. Abraham saw it from a different perspective than Moses, but still they were looking at the same land. In fact, there's at least 500 years that separate the life of Abraham and the life of Moses. And even though 500 years had to come and go, God is still a promise keeper. And Moses understood this had been 500 years in the making, yet God is one who makes promises and keeps promises. He must have looked 45 miles in the northwestern direction and said, Yes, there's that ancient city of Shechem. For God who makes the promise always makes good on his promise. Keep in mind that Moses had been staring at sand and rocks and dirt for 40 years. And now he's looking at a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It is, it is plush. It is plentiful. He must have said to himself, God, you really outdid yourself there. Look over there. That is magnificent. Oh, look right there. That's beautiful. God, you are a good God. You read the life of Moses and nowhere are you given the indication that Moses doubts that God is a promise keeper. In fact, his whole mission has been a mission about the fact that God keeps his promises. Moses is a man of great faith. 
There are numerous tremendous translations and definitions of faith. The one that I tend to gravitate to is the one that was given to me by Dr. Haddon Robinson. He said that faith is taking God at his word. If God said it, he'll do it. If God said it, that settles it. And so Moses is a man of great faith. God said, this is the promised land. This is reserved for my people. This, this is for the, the descendants of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. This is where my people will dwell. And if God said it, that settles it. And if God said it, Moses believed it. Moses believed God to be a promise keeper. What's true 3,500 years ago is also true today. For the greatest thing I can say about Moses is that he believed in God. The greatest thing I can say about you is that you believe in God. You know God to be a promise keeper. If he said it, he will do it. Let me give you a couple of examples. Throughout the Bible, the promise of God is given numerous times. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The person of faith takes God at his word, regardless of life situation. Regardless of the circumstances that are going on around you, a person of faith declares God will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, some of you may have been abandoned at birth by an immature mother. Others of you may have been abandoned by your spouse after 22 years for he walked out for another woman. Some of you may have been abandoned by your employer for after giving 18 years, that employer comes in and says, your services are no longer needed. People may abandon you. People may forsake you, but God will never leave you nor forsake you. And the person of faith says, regardless of my situation, regardless of what's going on around me, I trust God. I take him at his word. He said, he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I may be by myself, but I'm never alone for God is always with us. Another promise of God is given numerous times throughout the Bible. Specifically, it is rendered for us in the New Testament that my God will supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Whenever I read that, I always have to remind myself that God does not say he'll provide all of my greeds. He will provide all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. That's a promise that's easy to believe when the cupboard is full, when the bank account has excess, and when the market is bulging. But if it's true, it has to be true all the time, even when the cupboard is empty and the bank account is teetering in the red and the market's about to bust. If it's true, it's always true. If it's a promise of God, if he said it, that settles it. If he said it, he will do it. If he said, I'll provide all of your needs according to my glorious riches in Christ Jesus, he will do that regardless if there is plenty or regardless if there is poverty. God will provide. The person of faith says, I take God at his word. I believe him because he is a promise keeper. The greatest thing I can say about Moses is the greatest thing I can say about you. He believed in God. He believed God to be a promise keeper. If faith is taking God at his word, then the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disobedience. And Moses knew a thing or two about that as well. In fact, that brings us to our second takeaway. The second takeaway is that choices carry consequences. Moses understood, he believed not only that God is a promise keeper, but he also understood that choices carry consequences. 
In verse four of our passage, it simply reads that the Lord says, I have now shown you the promised land. You've seen it with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. Our passage doesn't tell us why God makes this statement. If you were with us last Sunday, you understand why perfectly God makes this statement. For last Sunday, we studied Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 to 13. Allow me just to set the stage and tell you the backdrop. The Israelites were no more than two years into their Exodus experience when God said to Moses, send out 12 spies, let them look at the promised land. The 12 spies came back and all of them had positive reports. They said, this land is flowing with milk and honey. It is posh. It is plentiful. It has everything that we need. But the majority of those spies, 10 out of 12 said, we can't take the land. The reason why is because the cities are too fortified. The inhabitants are giants. We look like grasshoppers in their eyes. It was only two of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, who said, listen, we can take this land, not because of our military might, but simply because of God's promises. God said, this is our property. Therefore, God will give us this land. Yet the people believe the bad reports more than the positive reports. Why? Because bad news always spreads faster than good news. And when it came time for Moses to lead the charge, he realized he was an army of one. There was nobody behind him. And the reason was, is because they believed these bad reports. There's no way we can take this land. God said to them, because of your choice, it's gonna carry the consequence. I'm gonna do what you fear. Not a one of this generation will step foot into the promised land. And we are told that when they left Egypt, There were 603,000 men over the age of 20. And God said not one of that generation, except for Joshua and Caleb, will enter that promised land. So that means for the next 38 years, 603,000 men had to die. I'm assuming that most, if not all those men were married. So that means that there's about 1.2 million people that have to die over a span of 38 years. You do the math, that's 86 funerals a day. 86 funerals a day. Moses sees people dropping like flies left and right all over the place. By the time you get to Numbers chapter 20, Moses is about 120 years old. That generation of people have already died off. That new generation has has, has grown up. Uh, They're probably no older than their mid-50s to late-50s. Do the math. When they left Egypt, they were in their teens. and They've been wandering around for about 40 years. So they're probably in their mid to late-50s. And now there's no water once again. They're in a desert for crying out loud. It's pretty common for there not to be water. And numerous times throughout those 40 years, God had always provided water. And every time there was no water, the people forgot about the provisions of God and they simply began to grieve and, and gripe and complain. So they went to Moses. They weren't creative in their criticism. They just simply said, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're doing. You're lousy. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? At least when we were in Egypt, we had food to eat and water to drink. And Moses goes to God and he says, please, Lord, will you provide one more time? God says, I want you to take the staff. I want you to gather the people. I want you to speak to that rock. Moses took the staff and he gathered the people. And instead of speaking to the rock, he spoke to the people who were dumb as rocks. And he got so frustrated at them. He got so aggravated at them that he raised his staff in the air and he struck the rock not once, but twice. He said in frustration and arrogant anger, must we bring you water out of this rock? And to the shock of Moses, water began to flow. 
And he must have thought to himself, I can defy God and live. I can do whatever I want to do. God clearly told me to get the staff and gather the people and speak to the rock, but I can recreate the word of God. I can do whatever I wanted to do. I can reinterpret the word of God. It says, speak, I can strike and God will still uh, give me my water. Last week, we discovered that when anger gets the best of you, it reveals the worst in you. When anger gets the best of you, it reveals the worst in you. This is not a one-time incident. Moses had been dealing with this sin of anger and defiance and, and arrogance all of his life. He had never surrendered it unto the Lord. And friend, what's true of Moses is true of us. If you do not, if you do not give your sin to God intentionally, that sin will deal with you eventually. And so eventually the Lord said, enough's enough. Moses, because you did not regard me as holy, because you did not trust me, you will not lead these people into the land of promise. Now, if that was you, you would do the same thing that Moses did. Moses kept pleading with God, please reconsider, please change your mind, please let me lead these people. I've been with them for the better part of 40 years. Please, oh, please, 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 please let me lead them into the promised land. You get to Deuteronomy chapter three, verse 26, and God said, enough's enough. Don't talk to me anymore about this subject. I've said what I've said. I will let you see the promised land with your own eyes, but you will not cross over into it. See, God always makes good with his word. Whatever he says, he does. And Moses learned the hard way that choices carry consequences. I think that's why for the bulk of the book of Deuteronomy, there is a constant, consistent theme that, that obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to discipline. You read throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you can't avoid that. Moses repeatedly says that. If you obey, it will lead to divine blessing. If you disobey, it will lead to divine discipline. If you don't believe me, Moses says, just look at my life. Because <laughs> Moses was example A. He was living proof that when you disobey the Lord, when you do it your own way, when you do not submit and surrender yourself to the word and will of God, that there will be negative consequences. So obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to discipline. So in a place like Deuteronomy chapter four, Moses just, uh, just uh, flatly says, obey the law carefully. Obey the law carefully. Do what God says. He's serious about how he wants you to live life. He's serious about his holiness and he's serious about your holiness. So you live it the way God wants you to because choices carry consequences. The great Shema is given in Deuteronomy chapter six. Listen, O Israel, God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. These commands I give you today are to be written upon your heart. Impress them on your children. Bind them on your hands, place them on your foreheads, write them over the door frames of your houses. It is your responsibility, mom and dad, to pass on the baton of faith to the next generation. So Moses says, God is so serious about this. I want you to talk about the word of God when you're at home. I want you to speak of it when you're walking along the road. Let it be on your lips the first thing when you rise up early in the morning and the last thing you think about and speak before you lay down at night. 
Let this be in you. Everything you put your hand to, I want you to see the word of God. Everything you think about, I want you to think about the word of God. Every door frame you enter, I want you to realize you're, you're under the authority of the word of God. Write the word of God everywhere. Live it out. Why? Because choices carry consequences. Obedience leads to blessing and disobedience leads to discipline. Many of you realize that three years ago, uh, Jane Ellen and I had the opportunity uh, to, to build our own house uh, there on Caldwell Mill Road. If you've ever built your own home, you'll agree with me that the building of a house adds about 11.3 years to your life. It is one of the most stressful experiences I have ever had. But there are some perks. To me, one of the greatest perks of building your own house is that we got to biblically vandalize that house. Before the floors were laid, before the sheetrock was hung, we took permanent markers into that house. And we began to uh, write the scripture on the concrete slab. Big letters just began to, to write the word of God. We sent Molly Grace to what would be her room. We sent Nathan to what would be his room. Jane Ellen and I went to what would be our room. And, and we just began to write the word of God. We biblically vandalized that house. We, we just, we wrote on the two by fours, the two by sixes. We wrote on the floors. We, we tried to write on everything we could reach. Every door frame that we went under, we would write or a word of God or we would, we would offer a prayer unto the Lord. We were able to biblically vandalize the house. To me, that's one of the perks of a new build. Because even to this day, on my best days, let me qualify it, on my best days, I'll walk around that house and I realize I am walking on the word of God. I may not recall every specific verse that we wrote down, but I just remember the experience. I know we wrote the word of God. And as I walk through the living room, as I walk into the dining room, as I walk throughout the bedrooms, as I go up the stairs or down the stairs, I know that I'm walking on the word of God. Whenever I enter a room, I understand when I go through that door frame, I am under the authority of the word of God. Now, does that make a difference? It makes a difference in my life. It makes a difference. It changes my mindset. And I know that if my mindset is right, my actions will be right. If my belief is right, normally my behavior will be right. And so for me, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous benefit because I realize that I, that I am standing on God's word. I realize that I am under God's word. I spoke of this in the first service. I had a couple of brothers and sisters come up to me and they said, you know what? We didn't realize it, but we biblically vandalized this sanctuary because when we were building this sanctuary, we came in and we wrote the word of God on the floors and on the walls. In fact, pastor, where you stand or about where you stand is the open word of God. Every time you you stand to preach. You are standing on the authority of God's holy word. Oh, my friend, this is why Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, what does the Lord require of you? To fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, and to obey him faithfully. This is what God wants because God knows that choices carry consequences. Obedience leads to blessing. Disobedience leads to divine discipline. This is a lesson that was Hard for Moses to learn. 
He learned it uh, because of mistakes. And so many of us learn valuable lessons because of mistakes, don't we? It needs to be uh, spoken again for it was referenced last Sunday. There is a biblical theme that is woven throughout the scripture. And the biblical theme is this. That God's grace removes sin, but it never promises to remove consequences. God's grace promises to remove sin completely and totally. You are completely, fully, and forever forgiven by God. But nowhere does God promise that if you come under my grace, that that grace will remove all consequences. Sometimes God does remove the consequences, but sometimes he uh, calls us to bear the consequences. And even in the bearing of the consequences, he still does not abandon us. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. That's a promise of God, right? And so we believe in to be a promise keeper, but we also understand that our choices carry consequences. So Adam and Eve, they were completely forgiven, but they still could not live in the Garden of Eden. David was completely forgiven for his sexual sin with Bathsheba, but his house was still in a wreck. Paul was completely forgiven for breathing out murderous threats against God's people, yet he still walked with that thorn in his side. Moses was completely and totally forgiven because of his arrogance and because of his anger, because of his sin, but still he could not lead the people into the promised land. Moses knows because of hard knocks that choices carry consequences. We come to a third takeaway. And I think that Moses believes from the bottom of his heart that death is not the end of the road. It's merely a bend in the road. You get to verse five and it just simply says that Moses died. Not a whole lot of fanfare. Not uh, any imagery that Moses goes up Mount Pisgah kicking and screaming. No, he, he goes up to die. He knows it. He's not afraid of it. Moses climbs up Mount Pisgah with gusto. In fact, the mountain is 4,500 feet tall. And it says that Moses climbed that mountain at the age of 120. And his strength was not gone. And his eyes were not weak. In other words, Moses never resigned from God. Moses never retired from faith. Moses never gave up. Moses never gave out. Moses never gave in. Moses says, God, I'm yours. I'm completely yours. I'm totally yours. I'm sold out. Warts and all. I am all yours from the burning bush experience all the way on. So God, if it's my time to go, let's go. Let me go up Mount Pisgah and I'll go up with gusto and I'll be there and I'll see the sights of the panoramic look of the promised land. But God, I know to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. And the moment I close my eyes here, I open my eyes there. And God, I'm not afraid of this. God, I welcome this. God, I know that you are in charge because death is not the end of the road. It's merely a bend in the road. I think that uh, Moses believes what the apostle Paul will write 1,500 years later. For he will say, I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor any height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. 
I think that Moses knows that his sin cannot sever him from the Savior. I think he knows that his rage cannot ruin the relationship he has with the righteous one. I think he knows that not even murder could malign his connection with the Messiah. I think he knows there is nothing that can separate him from God. He belongs to God. He's God's property. And so when it comes time to die, that's all right. Moses climbs 4,500 feet and he never once lost strength. He's 120 years old. He doesn't fizzle and fade like a sparkler on the 4th of July. He doesn't just fade out. He doesn't just give out. He doesn't just give up. He says, God, I am yours. Scripture says that Moses was by himself, but he wasn't alone. Listen, my friend, you may die by yourself. But if you're in Christ, you'll never die alone. God says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus said, I will personally come and escort you into eternity. I will guide you into glory. I'll personally come and take you to be where I am. So you will never be alone. God was there. He was the funeral director. He was the pallbearer. He was a preacher. He was the crowd. He was a family member. He was the undertaker. God was there. God is all that he had and God's all that he needed. In fact, the scripture says that nobody knows where the bones of Moses were buried. To this very day, nobody knows where the grave of Moses resides. I think God did that on purpose because God knew that those Israelites, if they knew where Moses was buried, they would dig up those bones and carry them into the promised land. And God said, you are not stepping foot in this earthly promised land. And the only way for me to secure that is to make sure that nobody knows where you're buried. In fact, in the New Testament letter of Jude, there is a conversation that takes place between Michael the archangel and the devil. It says that Michael the archangel had words with the devil over the body of Moses. And Jesus steps up and says, you know what? He's off limits to you. You can't have his body and you can't have his spirit. It's all mine. You can't have it. And Jesus always gets the last word. Whether you know it or not, my friend, I got to tell you, Jesus always gets the last word. He says to the devil, back off. That's mine. Moses belongs to me. Nobody knows where Moses is buried. But God knows because God knows that one day that which is perishable must take on that which is imperishable. That which is mortal must take on immortality. God says, I'm not through with those bones yet. I'm going to use them on resurrection day. And Moses will have a physical bodily resurrection. Moses understood that death is not the end of the road. It's merely a bend in the road. Moses loved the Lord. Moses worshiped God. Moses trusted him. Moses knew that he was in God's hand. And even though Moses died, the mission of God did not die. In fact, it wasn't the end of the road. We're told that Joshua took up the mantle of leadership, led the people successfully through the conquest into the promised land. But that wasn't the end of the road. After Joshua came judges, people like Gideon and Samson and Deborah, God raised them up whenever Israel would go astray. But even that wasn't the end of the road. 
people of God wanted a king. So God gave them a king, a a man like Saul, a man like David, a, a man like Solomon. But even that wasn't the end of the road. For the people divided with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and overtook the northern kingdom of Israel. In 586 BC, the barbaric Babylonians came in and overtook the southern kingdom of Judah. But even that wasn't the end of the road. After 70 years of Babylonian captivity, the Lord allowed the inhabitants of Judah to return back to the southern kingdom, to go to the capital city of Jerusalem and there to rebuild the temple and refortify the city. But even that wasn't the end of the road. God raised up prophets. Well, the last prophet to speak was a man named Malachi. After Malachi's ministry, there was 400 years of divine silence. God imposed a gag order where he did not say anything. No longer to raise up anybody to say, thus saith the Lord. But that wasn't the end of the road. From the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under the law. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He was born in a Bethlehem barn. The angels sang and the shepherds came. But even that wasn't the end of the road. Because Jesus lived a perfect life. He had a three-year ministry where he opened the eyes of the blind, unstopped the deaf ears, enabled the lame to walk, raised the dead. And at the end of a three-year ministry, about the age of 33, Jesus was handed over to the Roman rulers and they stretched him wide on a cross. They raised him high to be crucified and they laid his body low in the grave. But that was not the end of the road. For on the third day, Jesus got up with all power and healing in his wings because he burst forth from the tomb. He conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave. He walked around with the boys for about 40 days. And after that 40-day period, he ascended into the heavens. The gulking Galileans stared at him. And the, and the angel said, why are you staring at him? For the same one that you've seen him go up is the same manner in which he will come down one day. And my friend, even that is not the end of the road. Because about 10 days later on the day of Pentecost, God sent his spirit and the spirit came and rested on every believer for every task and every time. You might say the church was born in that moment and the church began to pick up the mantle of responsibility and the church said, we will continue in the God-given mission for 2,000 years. We've been taking seriously the mandate to go and make disciples of all the nations. So we go to some place like Jacksonville, Florida and we go to Uganda and we go to Asia and we go to Paraguay and we go numerous places, not just us, but other like-minded brothers and sisters and we go to advance the kingdom of God. We go to tell lost people they can be saved. We go to tell a dark world there is a light and his name is Jesus Christ. But my friends, even that is not the end of the road. Because one day God the Father will look at his seated son and he will say, Jesus, go get your church. And Jesus will stand up. And when Jesus stands up, Bugle Boy will play. Gabriel will sound the trumpet. And when the trumpet sounds, the the clouds will be peeled back. Jesus will mount his white horse. He'll put on his robe that's dipped in blood. He will descend with his holy entourage. He will have tattooed on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Jesus will come down. He'll right all the wrongs. He will set up camp. He will set up shop. He will establish his kingdom in earth and in heaven. And he will rule forever and ever 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 and because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done and because of what Jesus will do I can say with D.L. Moody 
For D.L. Moody said, one day you'll hear that D.L. Moody has died. Don't you believe it? Not for one second. For in that moment, D.L. Moody will be more alive than ever before. One day, my friend, you will hear that Davin Watkins has died. Don't you believe it? Not for one second. For in that moment, I'll be more alive than ever before. All because of Jesus the Christ. All because I too believe that God is a promise keeper. I believe by experience that choices carry consequences. And I believe that death is not the end of the road. It's merely a bend in the road. So my friends, let me ask you, how many of you know your birth date? Raise your hand. Most of us do. Praise God. You can put your hands down. How many of you know your death date? Raise your hand. Not a one of us. We all know our birth date, but nobody knows their death date. There's a sobering reality that every cemetery reminds us. For if you look at the tombstone, there's a birth date and a death date separated by a three-inch dash. All of life stuffed and summarized in a dash. Whether that life was nine days, whether that life is 99 years, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets a three-inch dash. It's kind of sobering, isn't it? It's kind of humbling, isn't it? All of life stuffed in that dash. Your childhood, your upbringing, your education, your college experience, your salvation, your marriage, your spouse, your children, your glorious grandchildren, your work, your unemployment, your vacation, your travel ball, your retirement years, all of it stuffed summarized in a dash. It causes me to ask the question what so many others have asked. What are you going to do with that dash? What are you going to do with that? What, why are we here? Ask Moses, Moses, why did you walk this sod 120 years? He didn't know the Westminster Shorter Catechism. But if he did, he would give that answer. For the first question, the Westminster Shorter Catechism simply asked the question, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what do we do with the dash? What is the chief end of man? The answer is given, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why are we here? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Because to be with God is to be filled with joy. To be with God is to glorify God. To be with him is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. That's why we're here. That's why we live. That's what we do with our dash. That's what Moses did with his dash. Only a couple things that will last for eternity. People and the word of God. I mean, you may say, well, there's a few other things. But by and large, you got to agree with me are the things that are going to last for eternity? People and the word of God. So what do you do with your dash? You invest it in the lives of people and you obey the word of God. That's what you do with the dash. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Listen, when it comes to your immortality, most people go to one of two extremes. Either people don't make much about it at all or they obsess over it. You've talked to people on both ends of the spectrum. When it comes to death and dying, there are some people who say, I'm not going to talk about it. I, if I don't talk about it, it's not real. If I don't talk about it, I don't have to deal with it. I don't want to talk about death. I don't want to talk about dying. 
And then there are other people and you say, hello, how are you doing? What's your name? And it launches into a conversation about death. I mean, they're obsessed by it. All they do is talk about death. I think both extremes are problematic. Biblically, we come at this thing and we say, you know what? Death is not something that we need to obsess over. But death is something that all of us have to experience. And this on earth is a dress rehearsal for eternity. So what you do with Jesus determines your new location. You can receive him, you can reject him, but you cannot ignore him. To those of you who have not yet received Christ today, I implore you to take seriously the claims of Christ upon your life. You, my friend, are a sinner. You're condemned. You're destined for hell. Apart from Jesus, there's no way you can have eternal life. But in Jesus, that eternal life can begin right now. For the moment of faith begins, the moment you cry out to him and you go from no faith to faith. You go from death into life. And if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the first note that is struck, I want you to come down this aisle, take a minister by the hand and say, hey, I need Jesus in my life and I need to live for him. For those of you who have already received Jesus, here's my advice to you. Charge Mount Pisgah with gusto. Whatever God puts before you, live it to the best of your ability. Be obedient in all things and charge Mount Pisgah. Don't fizzle and fade. Don't give up and give out. Don't give in. You charge Mount Pisgah with with gusto because you know that at the top of Mount Pisgah, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And what a glorious thought that is. So like Moses We hear this eulogy of a faithful servant. Moses believed God to be a promise keeper. Moses understood that choices carry consequences. And Moses believed that death is not the end of the road. It's merely a bend in the road. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this invitation. For those who have yet to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that today is the day of their salvation. For those of us who are believers, help us to charge Mount Pisgah with gusto. Help us to do what you've called us to do with all of our strength and all of our might. And along the way, help us to glorify God and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.